Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you may have to soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. And if you want to keep your best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. Even better, Remote lets you rest easy by providing the most comprehensive intellectual property protections and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered countries, guaranteeing that you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything that Remote offers, from payroll to compliance to benefits management, for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises, ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employee onboarded during their first year. Just visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better. See why global companies like GitLab trust Remote to manage and pay their international teams. Whether you want to hire one person or 100, Remote makes it easy. Visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better to get started. Hello and welcome to B2B Better, the only podcast focused on helping early stage marketing teams do better than boring work. My name is Jason Bradwell and every week I sit down with whip smart marketing leaders to talk about what it takes to build a modern day strategy that delivers actual business results, not vanity metrics. Each episode is packed to the rafters with actionable insights and takeaways that you can put into practice today. Let me help you be better than boring. Here we go. Today on B2B Better, I'm very excited to be joined by Ronak, VP of Marketing at Graph CMS. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Jason. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm, I'm very well too. Um, it is a Thursday afternoon on which we're recording this. I'm glad that uh, you and I share similar time zones because most of my guests come from the States, which means that I'm recording these things either very, very early in the morning or very, very late at night. You're in Berlin. Um, tell me a little bit about... Uh, your background, how you ended up in the city, and what you're doing for Graph now. Sure. Uh, And shout out to the time zones. I hope we both can have a good dinner after this and not stay up too late. Uh, But yeah, like uh, like you said, I'm the VP of marketing over at Graph CMS. Uh, We're based in Berlin, although we are a fully remote company. Our headquarters and a part of our team do sit and work out of Berlin. Um, I've been with Graph for about two and a half years now, so one of the very few, very first commercial hires, um, and we've grown from a team of about 15 to 50 now. Uh, before this, I was based uh, in Berlin working with a company called Venmate, uh, and in a previous life, I was working in uh, the Middle East and in Asia in the hospitality industry, so still very much um, involved with sales and marketing and commercial operations, but it's only more recently that I've really taken the plunge into the whole technical end with uh, developer marketing. And that's what we're here to talk about today. And I'm really fascinated to dig into this with you because um, it is not a subject that we've ever covered before on B2B Better. And also, to be frank, not something that as a marketer myself, I've ever um, developed a strategy for. Um, So uh, I'm glad to be talking to an expert like you to, to dig into that a bit. Tell me a little bit about Graph first, though. And uh, I'm guessing developers are their primary customer. Is that right to say? Yes. So uh, what Graph CMS is, as you can get from the name, is is a CMS, but the concept is 
around that of a headless CMS. So without getting too much into the details, just to give a bit of context, if you've, if you've used website builders like WordPress or Squarespace, that's essentially what they are. They're intended to build a website. And the whole concept of a headless CMS is that we take away the presentation layer or that opinion towards a website. And we just provide you with a content API where you can treat your CMS as a database uh, and depending on whatever platform or app you're building, whether it's a website or a mobile app or something for a smart TV, you can just query for that content from our APIs rather than having a sort of visual drag and drop experience. Um, and GraphCMS was the first headless CMS on the market to work purely with GraphQL APIs, which again, without getting too much into <laughs> details, um, it's, it's just a different uh, way or a syntax of querying data. So a lot of people would be familiar with at least the concept or I've heard of what a REST API is um, in a very similar approach. This is a different way to query in content. And I'm not going to say I understood everything you just said there, um, but it sounds very developer-y. Um, and that, who is, that is who you're targeting with your marketing, right? You are targeting developers, senior developers who are looking for this kind of technology in order to you know, make their lives better. Is that fair to say? Yes. So uh, in most companies, whether small or large, if they are adopting the concept of headless CMS or being um, in favor of an API approach, there are several commercial teams and technical teams. So products, engineering, marketing, um, any operational team that would be familiar because they have to interact with the product in some way. But the actual implementation is always done by a development team. So it's fair to say that if you choose a headless CMS, you either need to have some developer resources within your company or need to be working with an agency that's fairly technical. Got it. So with developers being your target customer, they're very different to perhaps customers that I've gone after in my, in my career, which are more kind of commercially or strategically um, focused individuals where you can almost get away with a little bit of marketing fluff, let's call it. Um, so I imagine developers have a very different set of characteristics uh, and that impacts uh, the type of marketing that you're you're putting out to them. Walk me through that a little bit. What, what is unique about developers and how does that influence your marketing approach towards them? I think that's a really great point you brought up with, uh, with the, you know, the fluff side of marketing that we're all guilty of having done at some point uh, and, and still do sometimes. Uh, but I also thought of it as a kind of black and white situation of speaking with commercial audiences versus developers when I started off with GraphDMS. And yes, there are several differences. A developer is not going to care about the marketing fluff or you know, the, the really visionary statements that you would tend to make um, if you were speaking to someone within marketing or sales. But at the same time, there are, there are a lot of parallels and similarities between the two. So developers also care about what the product vision is, what the value is, uh, what the ROI is, they're not purely focused on just the technical documentation. They also factor in certain business decisions because at the end, if, if they're in charge of selecting a tool or a service for their company, they're also answerable to the rest of the org as to why they chose this. And normally just saying, you know, because it's a cool product, isn't really going to cut it whether you're a developer or not. Um, <clears throat> so, so they do factor in all of this. But that being said, um, if I had to draw one very clear distinction. In marketing, a lot of times we say, talk about the benefits, not the features, because no one wants to look at a list of features. That's something that's interesting because in a lot of cases, developers will care about the features. Sure, the capabilities are important, but 
how that's achieved and what they have to do to get there is equally important for them. So if I had to give you an example with, uh, with Graph TMS, let's say to a more commercial audience, you could just get away by saying, yes, we support localization. It means great, you can localize your content uh, by region, by language, however you want, but you, you need to go a step further with, uh, with how you're doing that. So if I'm talking about localization to, to a more technical audience, yes, you can localize your content, but when you break that down, Yes, you can also publish certain content entries to a specific locale because we have locale-based publishing. Or you can um, query for fallback content if your content team hasn't put in French, uh, but they have put in German, so you can set a fallback. And getting into the specifics of the features behind that capability uh, is something that, uh, that a developer audience really tends to, to get concerned with. And I've, what I've noticed more recently is they're also very invested in how that feature development is going with the product. So we do, we do interact with our users quite a lot and we have a Slack community. And the same goes for a lot of companies in developer tooling, right? They would have um, a Slack or a Discord and a lot of users will actively give their feedback. They will contribute to any open source repositories that you have. They will offer their opinion on how to improve uh, your documentation or your plugins uh, just because it's easier for them to adapt it to their use case. And I think that's where the biggest difference, com uh, difference comes in is while you're being objective and transparent with what you're capable of, they're, they're meeting you halfway and contributing towards your product development. So while they may be harder to actually uh, win over to, to your brand, when you do do that, you actually get more back from them than you maybe would do from a more kind of commercially minded or strategically minded, uh, uh, not minded, uh, focused, I should say, individual. Um, and that's something that when I was doing a little bit of research uh, before this episode on, on developer marketing, really kind of shown through for me, and you touched on it there, this idea of community, right? And that there is, when, when you are marketing towards uh, these developers, um, they do see through that marketing fluff, um, but they are very eager uh, to involve themselves in the community around either a product that they believe in um, or the wider developer community at large. Um, uh, one thing that I did read a couple of times, which was, you know, you've got to be careful because developers actively dislike marketing. Is that something that you would agree with? It's hard to say because half, uh, half of our marketing team is actually... Uh made off developers. Mm. Uh, so, so like I said, uh, before we started recording, when we were talking about the structure of the marketing team, right, we do have a dedicated function uh, called developer relations. Um, and there's, there's many labels that come around in developer marketing. There's dev relations, developer advocacy, developer success, developer experience, all of this. Um, and, and that's what it really is. It is marketing focusing purely on the developer because Although they may say they hate marketing, what they do really like is being part of the conversation, if that makes sense. Yeah. They don't like being sold to, but they, they like feeling involved in the product that they're talking about. They, they like playing around with it for themselves. Um, in, in many cases, and, and a big shout out to a lot of other developer companies, uh, developer-focused companies like Vercel or Superbase, they have a very technical team, even within their marketing org. So having that one-to-one -one conversation with the developer is what makes all the difference because it doesn't feel like marketing at the end of the day. You're just helping someone, you know, achieve their use case or get through documentation. Um, and it's just like having a conversation at the end of the day. 
You say f- these developers want to feel like they're part of the conversation, and clearly that's manifested itself at your company in the development of this Slack community that that you mentioned that that you guys have built. What was the kind of what was the kind of decision making behind that um, that launch? Why not just involve yourselves in a existing community? Um, why was it important for you guys to create your own thing? Um, so I think this is a bit of a twofold answer because the Slack community itself or, or the concept of the Slack community existed before I joined GraphDMS. And I think there's two, there's two very different directions here. So in our case, at least, the Slack community is meant to not only help um, developers or users with using our product, but also some of the concepts around it. So like I said before, um, things like GraphQL or any JavaScript frameworks that they work with that are common in a stack with a product like ours, there's several questions that come up, which may or may not always be about Graph CMS because maybe a developer is just trying to figure out what the best JavaScript framework for them is. Um, and having other like-minded users or, or community members there to help out um, always gives this sort of non-biased answer, which is a bit more objective. And it's not about selling Graph CMS because at the end, everyone's trying to build something. And what I've noticed with developers is that they really love helping each other because they also love getting that knowledge back from others. And there's a lot of knowledge sharing within um, these developer communities. And the same applies here. So whether or not it's Graph CMS related, we're happy to have this sort of space um, where they can speak with one another, where we also learn about new frameworks coming out and we're also a part of that conversation. Um, and on the flip side, we also get involved with other communities, right? So there are Slack and Discord groups for uh, for GraphQL, for Next.js, for Gatsby, which are all part of the same ecosystem. And even over there, the same principles apply. People may or may not be building the same thing with the same product, but they're applying similar approaches and everyone sort of stepping in with their expertise to help someone out is, is kind of what the whole community aspect is for me. This is something, this whole kind of community building piece is something that I've been noodling on myself in, in my, in my day job. Um, for me, it feels like it is such a smart play in terms of nurturing, you know, out of market customers for the product, you know, people who one day maybe a potential customer um, but they're just not quite ready yet to take that leap for whatever reason and if you can as a business or a brand position yourself as that kind of town square where people come together to you know network and learn and, and meet one another um, around whatever it is your your subject matter expertise is um, it just gives you an opportunity to present to them a steady cadence of material and value and that sense of community so that when they do eventually flip and they are in that position of becoming an in-market customer, you're already top of mind. And then you're not relying on a, a, a kind of a, an outbound sales approach, which in startups, you know, can be um, somewhat tricky to, to kind of manage and operate. Um, you just have to rely on delivering that value and trusting in the fact that when they are ready to buy, your, your brand's going to be top of mind. Yeah, I, I think value is, is really a great way to put it because take, taking two steps back to what you said with, you know, the whole community versus sales-led and outbounding approach, I, I don't see them as living independently. So, for instance, I don't treat community as a growth lever or I don't say that we have to be, you know, we have to treat community as our um, 
direction or our growth. Uh, I don't know how to phrase it, but I, I'm not trying to leverage the community for growth is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for, for me, a community needs to grow itself. You cannot force a community to grow and you also can't force a community to get the value you want them to get. Um, so, so when some companies try to draw a strict line in, in a product-led approach where they say, okay, we're all about community and we're all about product, I think it's a little short-sighted because there's several other things you can do from the marketing or from the sales side that help you reach the point where you have a community that's going to give you the ROI you expect from it. So for me, it's about growing both in parallel rather than putting all your eggs in one basket. Hmm. Um, and that's how I've seen our community grow as well. So it, like you said, it takes months, if not years, for them to reach that point where they're ready to implement Graph CMS in the company they're working at. But the things that have got them there to, to make that decision are not only the product, it's everything they've picked up about, you know, the, the complementary technologies and frameworks along the way that let them make uh, better decisions. Yeah, it's almost like a credibility play. You know, we've, we've been delivering this value for such a long period of time. Um, you know, we almost need to, that, that kind of sales conviction almost uh of the, that that you guys are the right brand or the right product to be using is minimized because they've just been receiving so much knowledge and expertise and opportunity from you uh for for, for as long as they've been part of that community it's really smart for me as a uh completely non-technical uh individual um i fear that if i were put into a position to manage a kind of developer marketing strategy um i would just not know where to start. I, I I would find it a real a real challenge to understand exactly how I can deliver that value. Um, what do you think? You know, based on your last two two years of experience working at Graph, has been the most challenging part of developing uh, a developer marketing strategy. Uh, it, it's it's funny because at some point you kind of have to tell yourself that you're an idiot and there's a lot that you need to learn. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> sorry. So like I said, a lot of the, the guys uh, in, in the developer, in the marketing team are developers and they will not shy away from a single opportunity to tell me I'm wrong and what I'm doing is completely terrible. <laughs> um, and I think that's great because when I joined, I had no idea about how APIs really work in the back end, or I couldn't build my own website or, you know, whatever they do with Jamstack and, and with their own queries and stuff. And I feel it was a great opportunity for me to learn because if I'm selling something or if I'm talking about something, I can't bullshit my way through it. And I kind of have to figure out how these things are done. And I think this is a great culture that, that was put down from, from the developer relations team within the marketing team to really get hands-on with the product in the first few weeks and months, build something, just read the documentation, kind of figure it out. Um, and once you understand how these concepts work in practice, you can you can have a lot more confidence in, in marketing them. And I think that's a great way to look at it with any product, right? Because if, if you can't use the product yourself, it doesn't matter how technical or knowledgeable you are, you would never be able to provide the context that your customers or users expect. Um, and the same thing works with me and developer marketing, where I know I'm capable, capable of doing certain things, but I also know where to draw the line and involve the rest of the engineering or product team. Um, and that being said, I am by no means a developer. So I also know that I need to kind of play my strengths and focus on things like content and FEO and, and the operation side of things and give that independence to the, to the more technical side of marketing to make decisions that they think are the best to get us to, to the goals and KPIs that we want to achieve. 
with you with you freely admitting that you're not a developer and understanding where your limitations lie um but understanding that you are a content creator um and that and that is one of your strengths you know what would be your advice for someone like you who's gone into a technical organization and is tasked with creating technically focused content that is perhaps you know a couple of a couple of grades above their above their uh, existing knowledge how can non-technical marketers create technically focused content i would i would say just just start the, a lot of us have that imposter syndrome about whether we're going to do things right or not it doesn't matter. Just get something out there because at the end, if you've made mistakes, it's either going to be picked up in the review in the review process or you're going to get some feedback from a reader saying, yeah, well, this is wrong, but it's it's not a newspaper, right? You can just go and edit it. So you can always, <laughs> you can yeah. always make adjustments. Um, and I also think it's really important to take some time for the first few weeks or months to really get into the concepts and topics around your product. So uh, use your learning budget, right? Take a course, um, watch a couple of YouTube tutorials, figure out what people are building with the tools that you're selling or what use cases or, or uh, possibilities your product is enabling. And once you kind of get a hang of that, you'll slowly start to get into the process of writing a certain way or creating certain formats of content. And it's a learning process for you as well. No one's going to enter a new job knowing exactly what to do um, for the rest of their life. Um, so if you kind of shed away that imposter syndrome and take it upon yourself to learn as much as you can, mm. I would say that makes things considerably easier because even if you fail or do something stupid, you know that you can admit to yourself that you're still learning. And let's face it, like a couple of mistakes in the blog post isn't going to shut anyone down, right? You can mm. always uh, you can always kind of learn from that and improve the next time around. And I guess that learning doesn't just have to come from a course or from watching videos on YouTube, but also from your colleagues within the business. I mean, you mentioned already the fact that, uh, you know, you're engaging the wider organization in the marketing strategy over at Graph. You know, you can turn to your colleagues and ask them what they think. And, you know, what should we be writing about? What should we be creating? What should it look like? What's the best way it's going to um, uh, resonate with with our target market? Uh, is that something that, that, you've, uh, that you'd agree with? Oh, 100%. So, I mean, <clears throat> you're right. I didn't really include that. But of course, your colleagues and your peers are the people who should be guiding you because at the end, you're, you're, you're one team working towards a common goal. And it, it's quite interesting because that reminds me in, in a product like ours or, or you know, a segment like ours when we're speaking with developers, there's only so far you can get with long-term planning. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, with long-term planning and with uh, keyword research and you know building your roadmap. Uh, because at the end of the day, there's some new tool or some new framework that someone's open sourcing. I don't know every Tuesday or every Wednesday, and someone in the team is going to find it and want to create content around with it because they're playing with it. Obviously, you don't know where to start. You have no keyword research. You don't have a template to follow. You just kind of. YOLOing it and going with whatever's come out. Um, and that's also a great way to learn because you're picking up things before anyone's had a chance to. So there is no right or wrong. It's kind of how you approach it and how, how you create content around it. And as the, as the topic improves, as more people gain knowledge in that space, you constantly improve, you revise your content, create new content, whatever. However you want to do it, just create content if it's providing value to anyone, even if it's just you. Yeah. That makes total sense. People who listen to B2B better um, particularly love uh, kind of frameworks um, or examples of how they can take something that's coming out of my guest mouse and, and apply it to their work um, every day. So in your experience working at Graph, 
what are the kind of two or three core components of creating a successful developer marketing strategy? I have to admit, I'm, I'm quite terrible with frameworks. I mean, I love the idea of them, yeah. but I'm, I'm really not the best when it comes to practicing them. Um, what I do like is adapting case studies or, um, or something someone else has done and trying to put it into context, right? So for example, and, and this is something that a lot of people would be familiar with, but the concept of the, the, of the Zapier and Airtable moat uh, that they built with their, with their landing pages, and for anyone who isn't, it's essentially how um, I hope it's Airtable. Otherwise, I'm just shouting out the wrong company. <laughs> uh, how Airtable programmatically built tens of thousands of landing pages to, to sort of capitalize on every keyword for um, for everything with integration. No, it was Zapier. Sorry, Zapier. Uh, for integrations. Um, and what I love about that is, again, there was no blueprint for them to copy paste for themselves. They kind of knew that integrations is where we shine. At the end of the day, we're pretty agnostic with what tools we integrate with, and you can do anything as long as your zaps are in place. So let's just create content about all of it. Um, something's bound to work. And it did, because right now it's still one of my favorite examples on why creating content, whether or not there's existing search volume, makes complete sense, because you're playing to your strengths. You know it makes sense um, for a product like yours, and that's kind of the direction you go in. So for me, it's it's really less about frameworks and more about adapting what others are doing in practice rather than just being theoretical about everything, if that makes sense. It definitely does. And is there a specific example from from, from your work working at, uh, at Graph CMS that is an example of, of you doing that, taking another um, instance of success and applying it to, to your context? Um, yeah, so a, a little bit of both. So like I said before, with, you know, just kind of YOLOing it with something new, if there isn't anything pre-existing, uh, we do quite a lot of that. In fact, um, over the, the past several weeks, we've shipped out pieces of content on very new JavaScript frameworks um, that have been open sourced and that there isn't a lot of pre-existing knowledge on. And as we're getting more users in the community playing around with them, they have a sort of reference um, on what to look at and how that connects with GraphQL or with GraphCMS or, um, or anything else in the ecosystem. And based on that, we also kind of want to adapt this uh, Zapier approach to our use case where we want to build this library of integrating different technologies, whether or not it really um, involves GraphCMS, right? Because at the end of the day, if you can connect X with Y, then you may or may not need a way to source content to feed into why, but it's always good to know how a part of the process is done. Yeah, no, that makes total. That was total. terribly phrased. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Jumped in places. <laughs> no, it, make, it makes total sense. If you were plucked out of Graph and thrown into another organization that was targeting uh, developers, first 30 days, what are you doing? What what channels are you looking at? How are you deciding the best approach to, uh, to, to, to find success? The first 30 days, I'm doing none of that. Um, for me, it's, it's like I said before, right? It's about admitting to yourself that you're the idiot in this equation now. Mm. Um, so that's what I would want to repeat. Uh, just see what's, what people are doing, what people are talking about, um, how users or customers or people within the community are using um, <clears throat> the software, what ecosystems or communities they're a part of, uh, and just try to figure out as much as possible. And maybe once that's in place, I'll try to start 
figuring out how to use the product and doing some of that myself. So I, I guess that's easily going to be six to eight weeks down the train uh, where I'm not giving any ROI back to my new employer. Uh, but after that is when I would start looking at the sort of safe channels, because if something works, it's easier to scale that rather than starting something completely new. Um and slowly start carving time and budget away to experiment with new channels and new messaging. But again, here, a very specific thing to say is, I'm, I'm guilty if this were two of my previous roles, it's very easy to enter a new organization as the guy heading up marketing and just say, okay, well, the first thing we need to do is rebrand this because if we look like this, we can get on the block. Uh, and that's a trap I've fallen into several times. So just note to self, never do that again. <laughs> I'm going to clip out that part of this recording and I'm going to send it to you as an audio file and you can just play it every day, every, every morning when I you will. wake up. Um, but I've, I've certainly been guilty of it too. And, you know, you walk into a new business and you're like, you know, what we should do, we should launch the, we should re, re, we should relaunch the website. You know, that's, that's, that's going to fix everyone's problems. Yeah. Um, and you know what we should be using as our headless CMS? Graph CMS. Um, nice little plug there. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that, that, no, that's, um, Taking that building, that's good advice for any marketer, um, whether you're going after developers or any kind of uh, other other target customer, entering a new position and taking the time to admit that you're the idiot and try and become less of an idiot um, is, is is really wise. What would you say is the biggest marketing challenge that that you're facing right now as a VP of marketing? Probably where to prioritize, right? So... At the stage we're at as a company and team, um, there's always that, uh, let's say, nagging feeling in the back of your head that you want a kid on the block who's always innovating, who's always being uh, <clears throat> unlocking those shiny use cases. Uh, but at the same time, you're also conscious of not playing around with the foundation too much. You have certain, you've, you've crossed a certain revenue and customer threshold where you also need to focus on creating what some people would say the boring content, right? With, with, the, with the middle and bottom of the funnel to help customers and leads sort of get their path straight. So I would say we're, we're growing to that point where we really need to focus better. There is a lot that we can do, uh, you know, go back into collabs, go back into social um, in a whole different direction. But we also need to be conscious that we don't want to sacrifice our, <clears throat> our current positioning uh, and I'd say that that's definitely a challenge because it comes in the way of planning your 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 team's roadmap for the next one to three months, where you want to give that room for creativity to try something new, but at the same time you're you're a little hesitant because there's stuff that needs to be fixed mm. and optimized and improved. Um, so finding that balance is always tricky. I guess so. We're recording this now in, in kind of mid-November, and and I don't know what your planning cycle is like, but I'm certainly right in the throes right now of what 2022 is going to look like for us as a marketing function. Um, and I love this kind of time of the year. I just love sitting down with a blank piece of paper and just just writing a lot of stuff. You know, what is our philosophy when it comes to our marketing approach? What are our goals and our targets? What Even go down into the nitty gritty, like what is our, you know, what does the workflow look like from you know, the conception of an idea for a piece of content all the way through to, you know, it's, it's delivery and it's reporting. Um, but I actually just wrote down today, funnily enough, experimentation. We need more of it because um, I think sometimes it's easy for us B2B marketers to see that there's something that works and just keep doubling down, doubling down, doubling down. And 
you know, every year, perhaps you don't notice it straight away, but, you know, do it for a long enough time and you start to start, start seeing diminishing returns and other organizations, startups predominantly, you know, me coming from an enterprise, big company background, you know, they are experimenting and they are using these new channels and they are taking risks and maybe straight away, they're not, they're not nipping at our heels too much, but give it kind of two, three, four years of you running the same playbook very soon, they're going to catch up. Um, and it's very hard to put a percentage that works for everybody in terms of budget that should be assigned to experimental campaigns. But I operate around kind of the 10 to 15%, you know, should be carved off, whether it's budget, time, um, resources, whatever it is, uh, to just experimenting with with new channels um, and giving it a good go as well, not just dipping your toe in for a week and saying, ah, I tried TikTok, didn't work. Um, but, you yeah. know, putting to place a, a proper program um, over a three to six month period and allowing it to, to actually have a shot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. That's a great point with uh, touching TikTok for one or two weeks or not, because there is, it's, it's always, it's always fun to want to try and experiment the new stuff that comes out. And I'm also really guilty of trying to play it safe and being really skeptical of investing into channels too early on. Uh, but I, I love the I love the fifteen percent rule of carving out some some resources for whatever it may be, whether you just want to experiment with something or just try something completely ridiculous that you think makes no sense. Um, and that's that's something I really should uh, should try and adapt from you as well. I'm not suggesting that we all go onto TikTok, by the way. Like that was just the no, first. No, no, no. But, but it's it's a great example, right? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. great example because you would never think of TikTok as the the place for B two B software to to kind of do their thing. But you've got Adobe, you've got um, uh, from you've got VS Code, which is Microsoft's code editor, doing yeah. tons of stuff on TikTok, which is something I would think wouldn't work at all, but it, it does. So you just got to leave a little room for risk. There's a company in the States and they sell um, farm equipment. They're selling like tractors and, and things of that nature. Um, industrial kind of like B2B company. You know, they're, they're not selling the consumers, obviously. They're selling into the trade. I think they're called Dooley or something of that nature. And they've got a hilarious TikTok where they basically take you know, all the kind of trending music of the day and just apply it to their tractors. Um, I'll send you the link. It's, it's, it's very oh, funny. But it's, a, it's a great example of just something that you would on paper think that's not going to work, but actually uh, actually works works really, really well. Um, and they've got something like 250,000 followers of people just watching tri- t- uh, tractors dance to TikTok music. Um, tell me, Dooley. Yeah. Do, is it Dooley? Are you, Dooley, I'm, I'm, I'm going to check them out. I'm going to find them after we after we it, talk. It's something like Dooley. I will. I'll, I'll find them and I'll, I'll send you the link to. And I'll, I'll drop the link okay. also in the description of this episode for anyone who's interested. Um, two more questions for you before I let you go. What do you think is going to be the biggest change in how B two B companies market themselves over the next five years? Um, that's heavy. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, there's there's so there's so many ways in which this can go. Um, I think there's a lot of rethinking to be done in how you treat your users and customers. And I don't want to tie this out to something like going remote because of COVID or anything that's, that's current affairs, right? I think um, users and customers are getting a lot smarter. They have higher expectations. Uh, I know you spoke with Amanda a couple of uh, episodes ago, and she made this really great point about kind of moving away from the traditional funnel. Um, Again, I don't have a specific framework 
on a funnel versus a flywheel, but all I know is that a lot of companies will have to adapt to the expectations of their target customers and, and users. And what that means could be anything from changing your channel mix to your branding or however it is, or the way you speak. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of change in how companies are speaking with their end users. And I think that'll be interesting to see because you've got traditional companies, like you said, tractors on TikTok, right? Not something you would expect. Uh, but you're going to have to to really, at the risk of sounding too cliche, meet your users and customers where they are rather than expecting them to find you. And uh, that'll be interesting to see. It's this could be a whole other episode for us at some point, you know, talking about the changing uh, expectations of, of B2B buyers. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think it's absolutely spot on what you just said. And I think the pandemic has certainly accelerated a lot of what were, you know, trends occurring naturally anyway, you know, as B2B buyers age out of their industries yeah. and, and younger buyers take their place. I think it's like 74% of, um, uh, of B2B 74% of of 60 no 74% of 18 to 30 year olds working in b2b organizations are involved in that b2b buying process um yeah. and they they need to be marketed to very very differently to someone who is in their kind of mid to late 50s um and has been going to the same trade show for the last you know 30 years of their career um so uh yeah ab- absolutely spot on who do you think i should interview next on b2b better Oh, um, <clears throat> let's see. I was, I'm always a fan of Amanda, but she was here recently. I'd probably say Scott Matson. I don't know if you've ever spoken with him, but he's joined over at Algolia as the head of content. Um, he's always created really good um, content back when he was working at Zero, which is, which is another developer tooling uh, B2B company. I'd definitely be keen to hear some of his thoughts as well. All right, I'll, I'll reach out to Max. Um, I, I haven't heard of Max before, but um, uh, Scott, sorry, Scott, 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 Scott Maxson, yeah. sorry. Um, I'll reach out to Scott uh, on your on your recommendation. Hopefully, we can get him onto a future episode of B2B Better. Tell us before I let you go, where can we find you online for anyone who wants to reach out to you and, and learn a little bit more about developer marketing? Uh, I mean, the easiest is just <clears throat> sorry on my website. It's just ronakbanatra.com, first name last name.com, very original. Uh, but for anyone who's getting into developer marketing or really curious about how to, 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 to market to developers, um, I've also been uh, kind of co-starting a developer marketing community with Seb, who's the head of marketing at a, at a company called Enhost. I'm happy to share the link for that as well. We were a small bunch of, of uh, marketers just talking about how to do better um, at our jobs. Do send over the link and I'll get that uh, and that and, and the link to your website included in the description of this episode. But Ronak, otherwise, thank you so much for coming on to B2B Better today. That was a pleasure. Hope I shared something useful. And yeah, this was great. Thanks for having me. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you may have to soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. And if you want to keep your best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. Even better, Remote lets you rest easy by providing the most comprehensive intellectual property protections and data security in the industry. 
They own full local legal entities in all their covered countries, guaranteeing that you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything that Remote offers, from payroll to compliance to benefits management, for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises, ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employee onboarded during their first year. Just visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better. See why global companies like GitLab trust Remote to manage and pay their international teams. Whether you want to hire one person or 100, Remote makes it easy. Visit remote.com forward slash B2B better and use the promo code better to get started. And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you enjoyed the interview, go ahead and subscribe to my podcast, leave a rating, a comment, a review, or just share it on social media. It'll really make my day. Every Monday morning, I send out a newsletter to B2B marketers all around the world on how to do better B2B marketing. You can sign up to that via the link that I'm going to leave in the description of this episode. Or if you need a fix of B2B marketing content goodness right now, you can head over to my website at www.jasonrbradwell.com. See you next week. This episode was sponsored by Remote.